Okay. Well, thank you, Bron, for the, for the Bible reading. You know, piece of cake, right? Just love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. I think we're pretty much done here, right? And just a cup of tea and coffee time, we're, we're good to go. No, um, yeah, that, that's a, a really full-on challenging ending to that passage in, in Matthew 5. Uh, the, whole, the whole section is, is challenging. It's one of those difficult phrases of Jesus. Um, I know p- people that, that don't know Jesus do actually still often speak well of Jesus. They, they think of him, you know, they, they may not speak well of his followers, us, but they speak well of Jesus. They, they recognize he was a great moral teacher. He had lots of great things to tell us, good moral principles for life. But I, I think the reason why they have a, a lot of nice things to say or, or they think well of what Jesus said is deep down because they don't actually know what Jesus said. They don't realize just how many challenging teachings Jesus had. And, and this is a difficult passage. There's going to be lots of challenging verses that we go through. Uh, but it's, it's one that will push us closer to God and, and it's one where we can actually learn to, to find great comfort uh, in His grace every day and we'll, we'll certainly see our need for grace as, as we go through it. Uh, so this final section had lots of yeah difficult commands that, that we're going to go through. Um, yeah, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, to show love to everyone without partiality, be just like our Heavenly Father. Uh, but before before we go through this section that was just read out, uh, I, I sort of want to take a step back and look at the broader uh, broader context. This is this is sort of a bit different. This is just a one-off sermon, so we're not going through uh, the the whole chapter or and as a part of a series through the book of Matthew. So this is just a, a one-off sermon. Uh, so I just want to step back and and look at the broader context, which is at the start of Matthew five. Uh, Jesus begins his famous Sermon on the Mount. So we've all all heard of the Sermon on the Mount and even even unbelievers, it's uh, some of Jesus' most famous teaching. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount uh, with a section called the Beatitudes. And that's no small topic in and of itself. I'm not going to go through them one by one. You could easily do a whole sermon uh, or a whole sermon series just on, on the Beatitudes. But, but to summarize, he, he basically teaches his followers to be uh, poor in spirit, to be meek, to be merciful, to thirst for righteousness, to pursue peace. And so Jesus is teaching something new, and yet at the same time, he's, he's not. He's basing his sermon actually on the intent of the Old Testament. What, the, what God's law revealed in the Old Testament... There was always an intention, always an intention behind it. So basically, Jesus is, is turning up the dial on the Old Testament law, revealing its true intent, getting to the heart of the matter of what God's law was really meant to do for his people. It was actually not just meant to produce outward actions in Old Testament Israel, it was actually meant to transform our hearts. And there's a, a wide variety of interpretations on the Sermon, sermon on the Mount and plenty of input even from, from unbelievers like, like uh, Gandhi, uh, treating it as one of the greatest moral teachings in history. 
but but the problem for for unbelievers who want to just take hold of his teachings and treat them as aren't they great moral principles for us to live by? You know, I don't don't really care about Jesus. You know, I don't want to follow him, but I just I really admire his teachings. Jesus doesn't leave us with that option of separating Jesus from his own teachings. You can't pick the teachings and ignore the preacher, because Jesus said things like "Believe in me, take up your cross, and follow me." So you don't really have the option of going, well, I'll take Jesus' teachings, but I'll ignore Jesus. Because if you ignore Jesus, then you're not following his teachings. We don't get to pick and choose. And so I believe there's basically two major purposes that I can see with his Sermon on the Mount. Um, Firstly, it reveals the height of God's law. It exposes our flaws and it shows us our need of grace. And if you don't believe me, you know, hold on as we go through it. It it will do that, I hope. But but second of all, it shows us what the kingdom of God looks like as God's people are transformed by Jesus' teachings, and they and they're transformed to be made more like Christ. Uh, e- even here and now, we get to see a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like. And, and in most of Jesus' teachings here, there is a tension uh, of, of what theologians call now and not yet. That there's a truth that is fulfilled now, and yet we're still waiting for a greater fulfillment. So, you know, are, are you saved right now? The, the answer, I hope, is, is yes, I, I have been saved by God. And yet, I'm still awaiting a future salvation where God redeems the whole creation, glorifies our body, transforms our hearts to be completely like Christ... There's a, there's a truth that, yes, we are now saved, but we're also being saved and we're also waiting for a future salvation. And, and same with, with Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. You know, is the kingdom of God here on earth? Right? It's, it's, it's a challenging one because there are verses that say we are awaiting the future kingdom. When, when Jesus returns in glory and establishes his, his kingdom, but Jesus also says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel now. He teaches in Luke 17 that the kingdom of God is now here. So, so there's a truth in which the kingdom of God has already arrived, and yet we're also awaiting the, the future fulfillment of, of the kingdom. And so in, in the church, as we, we go through passages like this, and we get challenged and we get shaped and transformed to be God's people, we actually get to see a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will truly and fully look like in the future. So it's sort of it's a truth for now, but also not yet. So so let's let's keep these truths in mind as we go through this passage. We'll we'll look at how it exposes our sin, but also challenges challenges us to to live like Christ, so that people can see what the kingdom of God looks like. So let's start going through it verse by verse in in Matthew chapter five. But I'm just going to jump back a bit. Uh, back into verse 17 of, of Matthew 5, if you'd like to turn there. So Matthew 5:17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So it's pretty easy to fall into the trap. How many of you heard the phrase that the Old Testament was all about law and the New Testament is all about grace? Right, I understand why people think like that because there are a lot more commands in the, in the Old Testament. There's, there's entire books dedicated to 
proclaiming God's law. And then, you know, Deuteronomy is, is Moses repeating all of the law again in a sermon form. But it's always been about grace. Right from the moment Adam and Eve sinned and God provided a covering for sin for them, it has always been about grace. Every single person that has ever been one of God's people has been saved by God's mercy and God's grace. Old covenant, new covenant. And God's moral law hasn't disappeared you know, there might be some differences with civil and ceremonial laws and expectations. We don't need to, you know, get a goat or a lamb up the front here and slaughter. We don't have to worry about any of those things because they've been fulfilled. But, but God's moral law hasn't changed. He's always had his law and yet we've always been in need of grace. And even within that grace, within his covenant people, God still desires that his people live in accordance with his law and are transformed to become more like him. So, so let's start going through some of Jesus' teachings here. So uh, look down into verse 21. It says, You have heard, it, heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell, uh, to the hell of fire. So if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Uh, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going, to hit, going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus reveals here, and, and basically every command that I'm going to go through throughout the rest of this passage, it's all about our heart, not about our outward actions. Now it's, it's pretty easy to put on a front, to pretend to like people, to just get along good enough. You know, to Rather than love people, I'll, I'll tolerate people. You know, as, as, as long as I'm not murdering anyone, right? You know, as long as, as long as I don't actually act on those feelings of anger, you know, then, it, then it's all good because no one knows. But, but God does see our heart. And, and, and you see that often as well. People, have you heard people use the phrase, oh yeah, but, but God knows my heart. And that is the problem, is that God knows our heart. That's, that's not a good thing. He sees the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And here Jesus is saying that, that anger is a violation of that command. That the, the true intention of God's command against murder is actually just even having hatred towards fellow humans. And, and, to, and now he's not saying that they're the, they're the same levels of evil. He's not saying that, that you know, those who are angry should also be thrown in jail just like you know, with, with the murderers. But he's saying that it will still lead to God's judgment. And to, to further clarify, is not saying that all anger is breaking this command because we know that Jesus had righteous anger when he went and cleansed the temple. He had righteous anger. And then Paul tells us, be angry and do not sin. So there are obviously some things that we can get angry about. We should be, you know, it's okay to be angry at injustice and have an emotional reaction when we see sin. We should be 
angry against sin, but there is a sinful anger. And so, so how do we know when we've gone too far? How do we know that we are committing this sin? Well, I think uh, Je- Jesus gives us two examples in, in the following verses. Uh, the first is, is name-calling, and, and the second is unforgiveness. Uh, so the example that Jesus gives, uh, the name-calling, um, some translations will say uh, raka, which I think, yeah, the ESV that I just read out says, you fool, so he's yeah, calling someone a fool. Um, like in, in, in the Greek, the, the word is close to moros, which we get moron from. So, um, you know, just in case you happen to be using that phrase with your spouse at all or anything like that, please refrain. But, but, but Jesus, the, the main point is here, he's not giving a specific list of, of names that, or words that you shouldn't use. He's not saying that these specific words are evil. Since, since Jesus did actually call the Pharisees fools, he did use the same language against them, but he was justified in doing it. The, the problem is unjustified anger towards people that expresses itself through frustration and name-calling and mocking language. But hey, maybe you can control your tongue, though. Maybe you're not the type to say anything to someone's face like that. But what about behind their backs? Or more importantly, what about in the privacy of your own heart? You might be able to control your tongue to them. You might be able to control your tongue to other people. But in your own heart, what do you think? And the second example Jesus gives... Uh, deals with the bitterness of of unforgiveness. So you might be able to put on a brave, nice face and talk with them and get along just fine. You know, no name-calling, no gossip, no desire to slap them or anything like that. But you still wish that deep down you just didn't have to put up with their presence. So I thought, what, what, what are some of the some of the signs that you're dealing with unforgiveness. You know, I think when there's lingering bitterness that doesn't seem to just calm down, it becomes a sole focus. When you think about this person, you think about what they've done to you. What they've said to you, you know, it could be months, years or decades ago, and it just eats away at you. You replay those moments in your head over and over again whenever you think about them. You can't let those moments go until they fully understand what they've done to wrong you. And, and, and maybe you think of it in terms of, well I, well, I shouldn't have to tell them what they've done to me. If they're truly sorry, they should figure it out themselves. Does that sound familiar at all? So once again, it's, it's mostly about our heart attitude. You know, I mean, you, you, might, you might be struggling with, with unforgiveness towards someone who's already died. So you can't go and reconcile with them. You can't go and have a frank discussion with them to sort it all out. But that doesn't mean that you can't actually be dealing with unforgiveness, even if they're long gone. So forgiveness doesn't always mean becoming best buds again. Again, they might be gone. It doesn't always mean letting them back into your life. You know, that if, if you've been in a, an abusive situation, you know, reconciliation isn't always a, a possible or even safe option. But forgiveness can mean no longer holding on to that bitterness. 
no longer desiring personal justice against them. You know, we, we can rest and trust that God will do justice so that we don't have to, but, but we can pray for them. And pray that they would find mercy from God, not just from the ways that they've wronged us, but from the ways that they've wronged God. And, and we pray for their own benefit too. You know, maybe it's a sign of unforgiveness if you, your only desire to see them repent is just so that they would see how they've wronged you. But rather we, we pray for them for their own benefit, that they would come to know the mercy of God. Or that if they're believers as well, that they would still know even more, a, a, a di- have a deeper knowledge of the mercy of God. But we should desire to forgive, irrespective of whether they repent, if they recognize what they've done, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, irrespective of how you feel about it and even what the ongoing consequences are, we're called to forgive. That's, that's a, a difficult teaching. Some of the, the hardest words of Jesus' commands are those to, to love and forgive those who have wronged us. And it's not a calling to ignore justice or ignore God's law, but it's a calling to just leave it with God. And, and from, from us, we offer forgiveness and kindness because deep down, you know, all those that have, that have wronged you, that you're struggling to forgive, the reality is we've done far worse to God. We've rejected God. And yet he's chosen to forgive us so then we can forgive others. Let's continue on through the passage in verse 27. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. So remember uh, an atheist friend asked me, what is it with the church? Why are you also obsessed with sex? But, but I'd say it's actually the other way around. I'd say it's our, our culture that's obsessed with it. And I think the, the biblical view of sex is actually quite simple and I think that the real reason why they're upset by it is they're upset with the idea that God is the creator he gets to defi- he gets to design things and he gets to define things how he wants and gets to set the rules of what we can do and what we can't do but the Christian ethic regarding sex is is actually pretty simple there's there's not much to it it's just simply don't have sex unless it's with your spouse husband or wife God designed it for a man and woman within mar- within the covenant of marriage, and that's it. So that's why I don't think Christians actually do go on and on about it. We're normally just responding to our culture that's going going off course. But now his follow-up command from the, the seventh command of don't commit adultery, it, it's a very heightened command, but it's it's still pretty straightforward and simple. Don't, don't lust is saying, don't desire that sin. If you desire that sin, you are guilty of committing that sin so whether it's our actions or if it's just our thoughts you know if if you're asking the question well but how far can I go before I've committed that that sin of of lust or or adultery 
I think if you're asking the question, well, how far do I get to go, then you're already asking, you, you've probably gone too far if you're asking that kind of question. And the reason why we have desires like this for, for lust or adultery is because deep down we're saying that God hasn't given us all that we need, that we need to look beyond and outside the realm of God's law to find satisfaction, outside of what God has given you. you know, and then, you, then you'll be satisfied, right? Well, first of all, it won't work. It doesn't bring lasting joy. And, and second of all, that, that's a, a dangerous game to play if you think you can skirt with just thoughts and desires as if it will never, ever spiral into actions. So this is a sin to take seriously because it can spiral out of control. And, and Jesus isn't literally commanding us to pluck out our eyes or cut, cut off our hands if it's causing us to sin, but he is revealing the severity of this sin and the desperation that we should have to get rid of it. Anything in your life that is causing you to sin in this way, get rid of it. Pursue purity because it is far more important than the brief pleasures of sin. And you simply can't brush it off by saying, well, I haven't acted on my thoughts though. You know, yeah, I've thought it in my head, but I'd never actually do anything about it. It's all just in my head. But that's the problem is that God knows and he does see our thoughts and he doesn't want to just fix us outwardly, right? He doesn't want us to, to look all sparkly clean on the outside and have impure hearts. He wants to transform our hearts from the inside out. Again, it is all about our heart. So just a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was talking to a friend that grew up in a, uh, a very sort of cultish, fundamentalist church that was... That there were a lot of spoken and unspoken rules as to what you were supposed to look like and how you were supposed to talk in order to be uh, a righteous, holy member of this church. You know, you just, uh, you know, you don't, don't drink alcohol, don't dance, don't go to the cinemas, make sure you read the King James Bible, uh, you know, all, all, all those types of things. Make sure that you tick all these boxes and then you'll be a holy Christian that will fit in. You know, God will approve of us, unlike all those other terrible churches. And it's because we think that God cares more about having all of those outward things fixed than he cares about internal sins like, like pride or gossip or lust or anger. And as, as I press further uh, with her about this church, you know, it was, it was no surprise that yes, they had all those outward things fixed and yet it was full of gossip and full of bitterness and full of divisions and uh, full of even adultery and things like that. And it was, it was all just about ticking outward boxes um, so that we can appear to be holy. And, and, and the reason for this is because it's so easy to transform the outside, right? to pretend to have it all together and, and make sure that we make that the standard for God's people, that, you know, that the, 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 the height of holiness is to make sure that we look like we have it all together on a Sunday morning. That is so easy to do. But to see our hearts transformed to, to bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit, it, it, it can't be faked because it requires internal transformation by the Holy Spirit. I mean, and maybe we don't do this quite the same way. We don't have that, that uh, uh, the unwritten rules of the checklist of, of um, outward, you know, keeping up moral appearances. But perhaps we're, we, we are still guilty of pretending to have it all together on Sunday morning. You know, we, we don't want to be open about our struggles. 
our, our brokenness or even our sin. You know, we have a, a hesitancy to confess our sins to one another because we're worried what they might think of us. You know, which really shouldn't be the case. If, if we are a people that have been transformed and saved by God's grace, this should be a place where we can be open about our struggles. We can confess our sins to one another. So when was the last time you confessed your sins with a trusted friend here at church? You know, when was the last time you asked them to pray with you, to keep you accountable, to, to share your struggles so that they can remind you of the promises of Scripture revealed in the Gospel? So it's, it's challenging. But, but when you are open with your struggles, when you do actually open up with others, it, you, you'll find out that every single one of us here are struggling. You, you, if, if they respond with, what, you've sinned? Oh, I've, I've never sinned. Well, then, you know, let, let the pastors know about things like that. But no, the reality is we are all struggling. And, and when, you, when you're open with others, other believers about your struggles, you're going to find that we're all in the same boat and we can help each other out, keep each other accountable, pray with each other. So you're not alone in this fight. There's a lot more I could say about this whole passage, but we'll, we'll uh, keep moving through and I'll skip over a few of the commands, but we'll uh, keep diving, diving deeper because Jesus keeps turning up the heat on the law. And the reason is because we, we love loopholes. You know, we, we like sinning in ways where we'll try and say, well, I didn't technically break that law. You know, I, only, I only thought about it. You know, or, well, yeah, you know, maybe I didn't forgive him, but that's because he did this to me. Now, Jesus started um, by warning against hatred and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. But now he wants to, to warn us against those who take justice into their own hands. So this is the, the famous, famous one. You will have heard these words before, I'm sure, but look down in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The famous turn the other cheek phrase. One of those phrases that has so shaped our culture that you know, the vast majority of, of unbelievers would still know the phrase to turn the other cheek. Okay, so in, in the previous examples that I gave, Jesus is expanding on a command from the Old Testament. And he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say to you, you know, don't even have unrighteous anger towards your brother. You know, you've heard it said in the seventh commandment, you know, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even lust. So his teaching has been consistent with the Old Testament, but he's expanding on it and getting to the, the true intention of the law. But, but here, is he disagreeing with the Old Testament? Because right? Exodus 21-24 does say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But then Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. So is he contradicting the Old Testament law? Is he saying, oh, we don't have to worry about that command anymore? But the problem was not with the Old Testament passage. The, the problem was with how it was being applied. See, in the, in the original context, God was setting up a civil law for the people of Israel and, and the verse about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth 
was about basically saying, demanding that there should be justice in the land, that the punishment should fit the crime, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That justice shouldn't be served heavy-handedly and that justice shouldn't be ignored. So the verse actually has nothing to do with seeking personal revenge. You know, getting back at someone by doing to them what they did to you. But that was actually a common school of thought in Jesus' time. You know, that, that if someone, you know, struck you, well, then you, you could, you were within your rights to, to strike them, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? But Jesus calls us to allow ourselves to be wronged. And he's not saying that self-defense is immoral. You know, it has nothing to do with preventing someone from sinning against you. If they're in the process of bashing you up, you know, you don't just sit there and take it. And it's not saying that if you're in a, a dangerous or abusive situation or relationship to ignore that and stay within that relationship. It's not saying that at all. It's about how we respond after we've been wronged. You know, do, do we go after them and seek revenge? You know, it's not up to us as followers of Christ to take justice into our own hands and, and seek revenge. But now Jesus actually goes a step further, beyond just not being angry with them or even turning the other cheek. Uh, so now we'll come to our, our passage that was read out earlier. Uh, so Matthew 5, starting from verse 43. <coughs> you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what, re what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more, are you, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so this time the, you, you have heard that it was said, uh, was not from the Old Testament. There, there wasn't a command to love your neighbor but hate your enemy. You know, the love your neighbor part, yes. Yep, that, that part comes from Leviticus 19.18. But the hate your enemies part isn't anywhere in the Old Testament. And it was mostly just an expression that was pretty common in Jesus' time to, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They kind of managed to miss the entire point of the love your neighbor <laughs> command there and, and completely... Uh, ruin it by adding to that. So, so in this case, Jesus doesn't expand on this quote. He completely flips it on his head and says, love your enemies. Don't just love your neighbor, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is completely countercultural to the time, to basically every culture of the time. And the reason for that is because it runs counter to our natural inclinations. You know, everyone loves lovable people. You know, it's, it's easy to love people who love you. You know, to love your friends, to love those who agree with you about absolutely everything, you know, and, and those that never hate you. Of course, you know, anyone can do that. Anyone can, can go on about, you know, how loving they are when they only love those people. You know, our, our culture loves talking about love. 
we, we recognize that it, that it is an important and wonderful thing for our society. We use expression, you know, love is all you need. It's, you know, it's one thing to talk about it a lot. It's, it's another thing to actually do it and put it into practice. And that's why we feel the need to reduce love down just to a feeling that we can have towards certain people. You know, those whom I choose to love. You know, we have expressions that, you know, love is love or you can't help whom you love. And that, that's a, a selective love that doesn't actually involve any sacrifice. You know, it doesn't involve loving people we may not like or those who might not like us. That's, that's way more difficult. It's way more countercultural. It's way more counter to our nature. So, see, people, people nowadays assume that Jesus was teaching something that was obvious, right? Because we, we, all, we all know the importance of love. We all know we should love one another. And I know uh, Richard Dawkins was talking about the, the golden rule, do unto others what you'd have do unto you. And he says, this is a very wide... This is Dawkins speaking here says, this is a very widespread principle and almost amounts to common sense in a way. You certainly don't need a holy book in order to tell you to do that. Except it did. But So it's because Jesus already did tell him. You know, Dawkins only believes that Jesus' teaching is common sense because his thinking has been so shaped by the teachings of Jesus. That's the whole reason why we live in a culture that, that values love and equality and recognizing the, the value and the image of God in every human. He just assumes that everyone knows that because he thinks this way. But the question is, why does he think this way? Uh, I, I tried looking for a, uh, for a quote that, that summed it up, but I'd, I'd actually just recommend the whole book. But I'd recommend a book um, by Vishal Mangawadi called The Book That Made Your World. Uh, it, it's basically about how the Bible shaped uh, Western civilization and thought and charity and, and all sorts of things like that. Uh, it's, it's an interesting read, but it's pretty hard reading at times. Um, there's a, a, an in Indian guy that uh, has worked with people within the caste system, those who were the poorest of the poor, uh, the lowest caste within Hinduism, and they're stuck in poverty and they can't get out primarily because people don't want to help them. That The, the worldview there is that they're in this position because of sins from a past life. You know, this is karma, just you know, giving justice to them. And the worst thing that we could do for them is, is help them out of that poverty. Or, you know, if they're lying on the street begging, the worst thing that we could do is give them something because, you know, then, then we might ruin karma and then they'll come back, they'll still need to be punished. So the, the best thing we can do for them is to leave them in their state because that way they'll get reincarnated and hopefully have a better life next time. So the idea that we should love all people, be merciful and kind to all people, it is actually revolutionary. For, for us, if it seems obvious, then your thinking has already been shaped by this teaching. The reason why Dawkins thinks that it's common sense to love everyone is because whether he admits it or not, he has been shaped by Jesus' teachings. To love all people without discrimination. But, but recognizing the truth and recognizing the value of Jesus' teachings, that, that's one thing. You know, most people can recognize that Jesus' teachings is, is good and moral and a wonderful thing for society. Wouldn't it be great if everyone loved everyone? It's another thing to then live it. 
to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do we go about doing that? Especially when we probably may not have any mortal enemies in, in a very real sense, maybe, I hope. But maybe we have people that have, maybe you have people that have mistreated you or disrespected you or belittled you and you have the desire to respond in turn. God calls you to love them. And maybe you have, in, in the biblical sense, we, we can have enemies due to our faith in Jesus. You, you might know people that mock you and ridicule you for being a Christian. Or maybe it's people that you don't even know, but you're, you're frustrated by them. People that you see on the TV or, or the internet, those who mock the faith, those who have different opinions than you about, about the faith, about politics, different positions about COVID and vaccines and football allegiance, you know, even if they're port supporters or anything like that. You know. but no, God, God, I, this is unrelated. My next phrase was God calls you to love the unlovable, but that was not related to the, the port line. But, but, but it does. But all of these differences, these different things that we use to divide us, to use as an excuse to not love people and go, well, yeah, I, I could love them. Oh, but they did this or they said this to me or they... You know, this is their position on something. So, you know, that, that means I have an exemption against loving them, right? But Jesus doesn't offer any exemptions. We're called to love our neighbor and love our enemies. So th this is a tough question. Do you spend more time being frustrated with people or more time praying for them? Like that, that, that's a good question to determine if you're truly loving your enemies. How much time do you spend being frustrated with them and how much time do you spend praying for them? And, and if you are, what, what, are you, what are you praying for? That they would come to see how they've wronged you and start feeling sorry for, them, for it? Or are you praying that God would save them, show them the same mercy that he's shown you? I mean, may, maybe this command can be extended to loving the unlovable, you know, not just our enemies, but the difficult people. You know, in verse 46, it says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Right, so what about the people where there's nothing in it for you? They'll, they'll take up all of your time, they're going to take up all of your money or effort, all of your energy, they'll use you, they'll annoy you, they're going to be difficult. But honestly, that is exactly how God loved us. We didn't earn it and it cost him everything. We were difficult, we mistreated God, we ignored God, we used his creation. We lived for ourselves with the life that he gave us and he still chose to love us anyway by sending Jesus to die in our place. And now he calls us to love the unlovable, people just like us. And so this has all been pretty challenging, I hope. It's been challenging me, for me reading it and, and writing it. So let, let's just top it off with verse 48. Now, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I'm hoping none of you so far have been listening, thinking, yeah, this all sounds pretty easy. I think I'm on top of this. Yeah. Well, it just got a whole lot harder. And I, I'm hoping you still weren't thinking that after that last verse. But it's not unreasonable for, for God to expect perfection. I've heard people sort of struggle with that verse of, well, you know, I can't see why God would expect us to be perfect. 
then, then my question would be, well, what sins are you wanting him to ignore? You know, and, and the answer is normally whichever ones I've been committing, they are the ones that he should ignore. But, but he's perfect. God is perfect. And so he, he can't ignore sin. It's perfectly just for him to oppose all sin. Now, I, I did uh, have a, a Jehovah's Witness over a while ago before I got blacklisted. Um, where, yeah, we went through this passage, got up to this verse and said, you know, God's standard is actually perfection. You know, your, your good works aren't going to be able to save you. This verse, it says right here, Jesus' standard is perfection. And her response was, well, I'm, I'm not perfect yet, but, but I am getting there. And, and I mean, I should get there before I die. I mean, there's a lot that I could say to, say to that. Um, I mean, it, it does serve as a warning that pride uh, can be horribly deceptive. It, it does give us a blind spot to our own sins. But, but also what complete nonsense, especially when you read through the rest of this passage. You know, we're, we're so far off of God's law, we're not even close. Even the idea of being close to perfection is insane. And even if we did attain perfection, even if each one of us here, from now on, we walked out this door and we never sinned ever again, complete perfection, that still wouldn't make up for all of our past sins, right? We've still already sinned against God, so living perfectly from now doesn't, you know, make God, you know, check the scales and have you good, you know, as your perfection for the last few decades of your life made up for a life of sin. It doesn't work that way, and so we need a saviour. Um, I mentioned before that much of the Sermon on the Mount, like, like the Beatitudes, has this twofold intention to reveal to us what the kingdom of God looks like, but it's also to drive us towards the Saviour. See, we haven't fulfilled God's law, Jesus has. We haven't been perfect, but He has. He's the one, Jesus is the one who had a pure heart who didn't become unjustly angry, who showed forgiveness and loved his enemies, even when they were nailing him to a cross, he said, Father, forgive them. That was to, to save us. So I just want to quickly turn to, to Romans 8 that, that really sort of fulfills, uh, after seeing the, the difficulty of, of fulfilling God's law, uh, in Romans 8 we see, salvation that we have in Christ and, and where he solves the dilemma of Matthew 5. So I'll just read the first few verses of, of Romans 8 out. There is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we couldn't fulfill his law, and we failed time and time again, but Jesus came to fulfill it on our behalf, and he died in our place, and our sins were condemned in his body on the cross, and he offers salvation to you now. And all you have to do is ask him to forgive you. To trust in him and in his death and in his resurrection and he will grant you new life. Now, now all of us as believers can now look at that passage 
not as something to fear or to condemn us, but as a challenge and as a guide to be like Jesus, to show the world what the kingdom of God looks like when we forgive one another, when we live pure lives, when we turn the other cheek, when we love our enemies and when we pray for them. when we love all people without partiality, just as God did. I accidentally skipped over my notes there on God sending the rain on the just and the unjust, which is really ironic with what's going on out there at the moment. That um, I, I know it's strange in, in the city, I know some people have seen that verse and go, oh, you know, the, the sunshine on, on you know, the, the good and the bad God's people and, and unbelievers and, you know, that, that's the, the good thing and he also sends the bad things like the rain on the just and the unjust. But uh, for those of us here, especially the farmers, you know, we'll recognise this is yet another blessing from God that he sends on the just and the unjust without partiality. And so God is now calling us to show love to all people without partiality. So let's let's pray for the strength to do that by the power of God's Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word, but also in the person of Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come down to show us your holiness and your beauty and your perfection in in fulfilling your law. And Lord, we want to live like you. We want to show love to others and love the unlovable just in the same way that you have shown that love to us. And Lord, we recognize that we can't do that in our own strength. And so I pray that you would shape us and transform us by your spirit today. Give us the strength to to love all people without partiality, to show mercy and kindness. And Lord, so that they would see Christ in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.